This episode of the Outside Podcast is brought to you by Features, socks that help you perform at your best. You might ask, how can socks really elevate my game? The answer is by being so intelligently designed and so well-crafted that you forget all about them. You shouldn't be thinking about your feet when you're running, when you're walking, when you're biking. If you are, it's usually because something's going wrong. That's John Gaither, Senior Vice President of Product at Features, a family-run business based in North Carolina. John's dad, who was a serious runner, founded the company almost 20 years ago with the idea of creating a new kind of sports sock, one that matched up with the technological revolution that was happening in athletic footwear. The result is a sock that, after two decades of ongoing development, offers a custom-like fit that prevents the bunching and slipping that leads to uncomfortable friction and painful blisters. We, we recognize for a true performance sock, for somebody that's really going to be putting their products to the test, you can't deal with that irritation for 30 minutes while you're out for a run. Personally, I can't deal with that kind of irritation at all, which is why I now wear features no matter what I'm doing. I started with running, but almost immediately began wearing them hiking and biking. And then, honestly, while recording podcast episodes. The comfort is addictive. Feature socks feel like a second skin, with an anatomical design that conforms to the unique shapes of my left and right foot, and targeted compression that hugs my arches, so the socks are always in place. They come in a range of cushioning levels, so I can pick up the perfect sock for whatever I'm up to. John and his family are so confident in the durability of feature socks that they offer a lifetime guarantee. If at any point you're unsatisfied, they'll send you a replacement pair, no questions asked. See for yourself why Features has become the number one running sock in America. Outside podcast listeners receive $10 off your first pair. Go to features.com and enter the code OUTSIDE at checkout. That's F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S dot com and enter the promo code OUTSIDE at checkout. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Podcast. If there's one essential part of being human that we have all fixated on in 2020, it's breathing. The COVID-19 pandemic has made us hyper-conscious of how we pass contagions to each other simply by exhaling, and also very aware of just how awesome it is to take a breath when you're not wearing a mask. Meanwhile, over the last six weeks, those of us who live on the west coast of the United States have grown all too accustomed to breathing the smoke from wildfires. Or hiding from it indoors, obsessively checking websites for the latest air quality readings. Now, as we look forward, hopefully, to a winter break from wildfires and a future when COVID is no longer a menacing risk, there's this to consider. You've probably been breathing wrong your whole life. That's according to Outside Magazine contributor James Nestor, whose latest book, Breath, explains how the human species has lost the ability to breathe properly, and how bad that is for us in all kinds of ways. But, and here's the good part, this is fixable. With just minor adjustments to how we inhale and exhale, we can have a dramatic impact on everything from the quality of our sleep to our athletic performance and even our posture. 
James's interest in breathing began eight years ago when he wrote a feature for Outside Magazine on the sport of freediving. Recently, he spoke with editor Chris Kyes about how that assignment led him to launch a years-long investigation into the history and science of human breathing, and also embark on his own journey to becoming a better breather. Here's Chris. One of your first chapters is called The Worst Breathers in the Animal Kingdom, and you're referring to humans. So explain that. How, how, are, how did we become the worst breathers? Yeah, it's sad but true. And this was something I had no idea about when I first entered into this research. I learned from biological anthropologists that the human face has been changing very dramatically in just the past few hundred years. It's been changing so much that few of us have straight teeth because our mouths are too small. That's why you have crooked teeth. Your mouth is too small for your face. And when you have a mouth that's too small for your face, you also have a smaller airway, which is one of the main reasons that so many of us are suffering from sleep apnea, snoring, other respiratory issues. And how has that anatomical change taken place? Like, what has caused that? So, you know, life always changes. It's always pushing against what it once was. And a lot of people assume that evolution always means progress, but it doesn't. Evolution means change. So the human species has been changing in ways that are deleterious to our health. You can just look around and, and see that. But that wasn't news to me. I had known that, but I didn't know that our faces had taken one of the biggest hits. So right with the advent and the commercialization and the distribution, mass distribution of industrialized foods, our, we started getting crooked teeth on a mass scale, and we had never had crooked teeth before. This, our species had never had crooked teeth, and you can go back to the skeletal record, look back 500 years, 5,000 years, 50,000 years, whatever, straight teeth the, the whole way through. Same with all, all other animals. So it's this soft, mushy, crappy food. Uh, we didn't have to chew it, so we didn't develop the right musculature, and we didn't develop the right bone mass, and our upper palates didn't fall down the way that they were supposed to. And so our mouths grew way too small. And I don't know if you're like me, I've had extractions, braces, headgear, all that stuff which was just a normal part of growing up. It was never if you were gonna get braces and, and wear headgear, it was just when. And it, it was fascinating to me to learn of our, of our folly. <laughs> you know, just the past few hundred years, we've completely messed up our bodies and we've completely made it much more difficult for us just to take an easy breath in and out. So yeah, talk about that. So our mouths have gotten smaller and our upper palates have not fallen in the way. So how does that affect our nasal breathing? So what happens when the upper palate, if, if you take your thumb, if your thumb is clean, don't do this with a dirty thumb, anybody. But if you can put your thumb up to your upper palate, just open your mouth, put it up there. And if there's a big indentation, like there is with my upper palate, that palate can go in and disrupt the sinus passages and actually make it harder for you to get air in and out of your nose. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this topic. You talk in early on in the book about a breathing class that you uh, attended that had a profound effect on you. What prompted you to go to this breathing class in the first place? Well, this was, God, this was 10, 11 years ago or so. And I had been suffering from chronic bouts of 
mild pneumonia. And I went to my doctor and she suggested that I check out a breathing class. And you know, those are a dime a dozen here in, in my city. So I found one, looked it up online, didn't know anything about it and took this introductory course and then a couple weeks later i did this follow-up course where i walked into this this funky room of this old victorian sat cross-legged in a corner the room was pretty cold this was winter time and started breathing in this rhythmic pattern and just had the most strange physiological reaction i just started pouring sweat not like the sweat of riding a bike or jogging or boxing or whatever just this completely different kind of sweat where my hair was sopping wet not just moist but sopping wet my t-shirt was sopping wet and there were even sweat blotches on my jeans so there were other people in the class they saw it and uh, I thought wow Uh, you know people asked if I was okay and I felt great but I went back to my doctor and I said hey I had this crazy experience I'm sure you know about this and you know she said that I must have had a fever the room must have been too hot I must have been wearing heavy clothes. So she had no idea what had, what had happened. So as a, as a journalist, I didn't want to write a memoir about this, right? I didn't find that that would be too interesting. So I just kind of filed it away. And it wasn't until this magazine you might've heard of called, called Outside sent me to Greece to write about free divers that I realized that there was a, a larger story here to be told about breathing and how it affects us and the new science of this area, this field of research. And what what did you see in those deep divers that uh, proposed sort of a link between what you'd experienced and why this was a, a, a lost art? So these divers, none of them were born with this lung capacity. And there were like short divers and tall divers and large divers, small divers, you know, every imaginable ethnicity from like 30 different countries. And yet they'd all develop by the force of will these enormous lungs. It's like they they almost look like ants because they had these huge chests. So they weren't born this way, you know. Um, One diver, Herbert Nitsch, um, supposedly has a lung capacity of 14 liters. That's, That's twice the amount of an average adult. So he wasn't born that way. And it got me thinking, watching them, they they managed to hone the art of breathing so well that they can stay underwater for six, seven, eight minutes at a time. They can dive to depths far below what any scientist thought possible, 300, 400 feet, no fins, no anything. And I was lucky enough to meet some some free divers who told me, they're like, well, this is only a part of this breathing thing, being able to dive deep and hold your breath. There's this whole other world out there where you can use breathing to heal yourself. You can use it to heat yourself. You can use it to live longer. And so that really piqued my interest. And I just started filing away stories over several years until I had enough of these and enough contacts that I put it together and, and went out to research a book. Yeah. And you talk, as I said before, about how we've become worse as a species at breathing. And one of the baseline things that you talk about and where you start with this is mouth breathing versus nose breathing. There's an incredible distinction between the the quality of breath you get through the nose versus the mouth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So about 25 to 50% of the population habitually breathes through the mouth. And I see pictures of myself 
growing up and I was mouth breathing a lot, even into adulthood, especially when working out, I thought, oh, this is the only way to get oxygen into your body. It's to breathe through your mouth. But when I started hearing this from researchers, they said, oh no, mouth breathing is, this is so damaging on so many different levels. And then they showed me a model of the human sinuses, like a deli slicer view of a human head. And you just see what a complex and incredible organ the nose is. So when we breathe air through the nose, we're forcing it through this maze of different structures. It's filled with hair, that's filled with mucus, that's filled with cilia. All of these different things filter crap out of every breath we take in. Those structures also heat up that breath They moisten that breath, they pressurize it, and they condition it so that by the time it enters our lungs, our lungs can more efficiently extract oxygen. So we get 20% more oxygen breathing equivalent breaths through the nose than we do through the mouth. And look at any side section of a skull and, and you'll see how much is going on at the front of our faces. And what I learned from researchers is how poorly this is recognized and how few of us really know this. And you say something like 50% of the population is mouth breathers. So is that a product of the fact that our mouths have gotten smaller, like you've talked about before, or is it stress-induced? Or what, what are the factors that are contributing to us becoming mouth breathers? It's several things. Uh, one of the main ones is the fact that our mouths have, have gotten smaller. So, um, and I know that seems counterintuitive. It's like, well, your mouth is smaller than, you know, your nose is smaller. Why would breathing through your mouth be easier? But I think I explained through that upper palate stuff, what is, what is really happening. So, so many of us have such small airways now that we sort of push our heads forward. You see this posture everywhere from weightlifters to healthy people, to people who have uh, obesity issues they push their head forwards because that's how you open the airway. And someone told me this, Dr. Mike Mew was like, it's, it's like we're walking around this permanent CPR posture now. As you think about someone administering CPR, they take their hand at the back of the head and they crane it open. But so many of us are just breathing this way uh, anyway, because it's the only way we can get a free breath of air in. So there's the anatomical issue. There's the environmental issue too. So when you live in a city like I do, there's pollution, there's allergens, there's other gunk in the air that tends to plug up the nose. And once the nose is plugged up, we just default by breathing through the mouth. And after a while, that becomes a habit. And the less you use the nose, the more it's going to get plugged up. So it's really a use it or lose it organ. And, you know, there's other issues as well. Asthmatics and people with anxiety will tend to breathe through their mouth because they hyperventilate a lot because they're so nervous that they're going to lose the ability to get a free breath of air. And I imagine even if you're not walking around during the day uh, as a mouth breather, that a lot of us end up doing that at night as we're sleeping. So what's one way to find out if you are a mouth breather at night and this is something that you need to address? Yeah. So I had been a mouth breather for, for decades at night, so much so that I would go to sleep with this big glass of water by my bed. didn't matter if I was in a hotel, if I was camping, uh, if I was at home. And I'd wake up throughout the night with my mouth totally dry. I'd take some big, big hits of water, go back to sleep, like decades like that. And so that's one way 
to to learn that you're a mouth breather at night is your mouth dry at night are you breathing through the nose the rest of the rest of the day but sort of the the quickest little hack that i discovered and this was from sound pretty sketchy to me when i first heard about it don't don't go online and look at youtube stuff on this because it's it's a crazy hole you don't want to sink into but (laughs) this this idea of of sleep taping which is where you put this little piece of tape on your lips and i heard about this at stanford from the doctor of speech language pathology she prescribed it to all of her patients i heard about from other doctors and other dentists they said yeah we've been doing this for decades and it has this incredible effect so that's how you can really find out if you're a mouth breather or nose breather because the first couple of nights you do that if you're like me you're like this is awful it feels terrible it feels like you're being strangled but what's really happening is you're just reacclimating your body to breathe through the nose and that can take a while but once you do it the the benefits are innumerable so you're looking at a couple of miserable nights before you kind of reach calibration well i don't want to guarantee anyone anything it took me probably 10 days two weeks to really get comfortable with it and that was a couple years ago and now i cannot i have a hard time sleeping without this stuff so I take it camping. I use it every single night um, and because it makes such a huge difference to the quality of my sleep. And I know this because I've worn pulse oximeters, all of this other tech at night and looked at my quality of sleep, nasal breathing versus mouth breathing. And this is really nothing new to, to researchers. They've known this for decades. But again, it was one of those things that was just sort of lost in academia in these papers with these really long, awful titles that the general public would never bother reading. So, you know, my job was to go into medical libraries, talk to the experts in the field and and try to make that clear and, and position it in a way that, that people could understand it and, and then use these tricks to help improve their health. Yeah, well, one of your other jobs in here was uh, to experiment on yourself to, to find out exactly what 100% mouth breathing would look like Explain the study that you were a part of and how it was conducted. It was, I think it was a 30-day test, right? But it included 10 days of mouth breathing and then 10 days of nasal breathing? It was, it was 10 and 10, so about a 21-day experiment. So I'd been talking with the chief of rhinology research, this great guy, Dr. Jayak or Nayak, you know, world leader in this field, big nose guy. He's a surgeon as well. And we had had several interviews. I live pretty close to Stanford here in San Francisco. So I'd go down there, we'd have these really long lunches and he'd tell me all of the latest research about the nose and all the vast improvements his patients were getting just by switching the pathway through which they breathe, just by nasal breathing. And you know, this, this guy is a data-driven uh, expert in the field. So it was fascinating looking at all these studies and I asked him, I said, well, you've told me that how damaging mouth breathing is. It's, you know, been directly linked to ADHD, to metabolic problems. I mean, I can just go down the list, respiratory issues. But nobody knew how quickly these problems came up because no one had studied it. And I was like, you're, you're at Stanford. Why don't, why don't you study it? You know, we'll get together a big study. And he thought, and his words is he thought it was unethical because he knew of the damage that would happen. So I volunteered. I said, well, what if I do it and I find someone else? He said, cool, but I can't pay for this. You guys have to pay for it. So I was like, oh, dear God. But 
we we did it anyway. And the other subject, um, I managed to squeeze in one other person because an N2 study would be so much more impressive that the data would be. So this guy flew, Anders Olsen, flew from Sweden to spend a month in, in San Francisco, 10 days of which his, his nose was plugged with, with silicone, uh, doing uh, so many tests, three times a day, uh, you know, blood oxygen. We were doing um, SpO2, CO2, nitric oxide, blood pressure, weight, three times a day. And then we went to Stanford three times to do pulmonary function tests, CAT scans, and and all the rest. So it was a, you know, I knew it was going to suck. I just didn't know that the mouth breathing lifestyle, which so many people adhere to unknowingly, was this damaging on the body. And that would be really, really this, this painful in, in so many ways. Yeah. And tell us what, after those 10 days, the first 10 days were the just <clears throat> exclusively mouth breathing and your nose was plugged up with silicone. Um, what did the data show after those 10 days about your body that that were measurable uh, in terms of the impacts? Well, it didn't take 10 days. Uh, within a few hours, my blood pressure shot up to about 160 over 100, which is crazy hyper to stage two hypertension. I'd never seen my blood pressure that high ever. Were you worried about and it? That, I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but you know, the body, there, there's some people that live with you know, 180 over 120 for, for years and years. I thought 10 days, I can do this. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I was having second thoughts after five days. But another thing that was interesting, that night, that first night, you know, we got home from Stanford around six. We ate, we went to sleep. And that first night, I started snoring. And I don't snore because we took a bunch of baseline data. I snored for an hour and a half. And Anders, when I saw him the next morning, I was like, were you snoring last night? He's like, yeah, I snored for two hours. And within a couple of days, we both started suffering from sleep apnea, which is different from snoring. That's when you stop breathing. You, you are literally choking on your own body. Something like 25% of the population has this. And it's so damaging. So our snoring and sleep apnea, like every day was getting worse and worse. Halfway through that 10-day run, I was snoring for four hours out of the night which is just incredible. And, you know, I won't get into the subjective data. Of we just felt awful, so fatigued. Our bodies were going to crap. Our heart rate variability was in the gutter. Uh, we had trouble exercising. Anders was getting lost around my neighborhood. <laughs> like, so it was, and, and th this isn't just like, like a psychosomatic or placebo effect, right? Is this is we we have the data that's showing all of the damage that's that's happening to your your brain and body. And again, this is no surprise for the people who study this. It's just a whole different thing to feel it happening in your own body and to see it happening so quickly. I, I noticed a significant change in my ability to concentrate in my stress levels, which was clearly shown with blood pressure too. And uh, just my, my ability to, to get by. And, and what was so sad is, and I really thought about this, is, you know, this huge population of kids now, 20 kids suffer from mouth breathing even more than adults. Like, they're told that being congested their whole life is totally normal. Like, mouth breathing and snoring is considered this really cute thing for, for babies and for kids. But you look at the science of this stuff, 
and it is so it affects how much you're going to grow it affects your brain development it affects your metabolism you know direct links between diabetes and snoring and sleep apnea so you know with with all the giggles and laughs that anders and i were having it this was also so completely frightening to us that these problems could arise so quickly after the break James Nestor talks about the rapid and dramatic improvement in his condition when he switched from 100% mouth breathing to 100% nasal breathing. At the top of the episode, we talked about features, innovative socks that help you perform at your best by being so well-engineered that they feel like a second skin. Features are made by a family of athletes who design and craft socks that they want to wear themselves. Hugh Gaither founded the company in 2002 with a vision for a new kind of sports sock. And today, he runs the company alongside his sons, John and Joe. As John explains it, all three of them continue to play big roles in product development. We're ultimately the biggest critics. We put them to the test. If they're not working for us, we know that they're not going to work for somebody else. Based on my own testing, I can tell you that features are unlike any sock I've worn before. They are designed to work with your foot in motion with no toe seam, an anatomical design that conforms to the unique shape of my left and right foot, and targeted compression that hugs my feet only where they really need it. They feel like they were made just for me. John told me they've gotten used to hearing customers say this. It's why his family is in this business. We're inspired by the reactions that we get from users. That's what really drives us. I think it's kept us motivated. It's why we are all still involved in running the businesses because we're truly passionate about the products that we make and the people that we're providing them to. Learn more about why Feature Socks are the number one running sock in America and check out their awesome colors and patterns at features.com. Outside podcast listeners receive $10 off your first pair of socks by using the code OUTSIDE at checkout. That's F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S dot com and enter the promo code OUTSIDE at checkout. Okay, so then you, after the 10 days, they take out the nasal plugs and you switch to nasal breathing. So did all of your you know, baseline metrics and, and data, do they all kind of return to normal uh, pretty quickly after starting the nasal breathing again? So my blood pressure dropped about 15 points right off the bat, a couple hours. Uh, that night, I snored for 28 minutes. At my highest, I was snoring four hours, 28. The next night, I think it was three minutes. The night after that, zero. Zero sleep apnea events. We both showed the exact same scores with this. Heart rate variability went through the roof, which is a good thing. You want that. CO2 and oxygen levels stabilized. Stress levels were gone. It was so transformative. And not just from a personal level, but this is clearly what the data have, has, has shown. And even um, our endurance and our fitness, we were calculating that. And I had an increase of about 7% per performance on a stationary bike. It took me a little while to adjust to nasal breathing over, over mouth breathing. So it wasn't just right off the bat, but at the end of those 10 days, it was just so clear the benefits of, of nasal breathing. Well, and as you say, I mean, the, the research is out there, but what, what is fascinating to me is even reading it, it's sort of hard to believe. I mean, I'm referring specifically to the exercise component because that really has not 
to my knowledge, trickled down much, maybe in fits and starts, but it's not universally accepted. And nobody that I know um, that isn't aware of this stuff already, you know, none of the people that I run with breathe through their nose while they're running. But as you say, uh, we're actually more efficient. So how do we know that? And how do we apply that other than, I guess, just starting to build up and, and trying to breathe through our noses when we're exercising? So researchers have been looking at this for, for decades. Dr. John Duyar was doing studies in this in the, in the 80s and 90s. So was Phil Maffetone. And what Duyar would do was he would put a cyclist on a stationary bike and record heart rate and all these other measurements. And he would have the cyclist breathe through the mouth and perform a task pumping out 200, I think it was 200 watts, uh, slowly, incrementally working up to about 200 watts. And then he would have them nasal breathe. And, and he showed that when they were nasal breathing, you know, they were breathing about 14 times a minute. And when they were mouth breathing, they could be breathing, you know, 60, 60, 70 times a minute. And if you look at your heart rate when you're nasal breathing versus mouth breathing, you nasal breathe, your heart rate's going to go way down, okay? So when you're working out and you're working out uh, at the same level with a lower heart rate and lower exertion, you then have that buffer to push even harder, right? To go further and faster using the same amount of energy. And that's what they've, they've shown. I just talked to Duyar a couple of weeks ago and he's still doing these studies. And the people who have, who have done this, who have switched to nasal breathing, I mean, you can, you can hear them singing the praises. Sanya Richards-Ross, is, she was the top sprinter for, for 10 years. Uh, you know, obligate nasal breather. Check out the pictures of her just kicking everyone's ass in, in almost every race. So there's not a lot of controversy about it. The, the people that have studied it know it works, but so few people want to do this because exactly. it's really hard at the beginning. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the reality. It's really hard. Like as Westerners, we're like, okay, I'm, you know, I got this new. Uh, I'm I'm taking this this new booster. I'm gonna eat this new goo, and it's gonna give me this amount of glucose, and I'm gonna run faster. Cool, instant results. The adaption to nasal breathing, if you've been mouth breathing for decades, can take weeks or months to really get through it. But as Duyard said. He's like, once you get through it, it is such a dramatic difference. Your amount, your ability to recover, your performance, your perceived exertion, I mean, on and on and on. And th- these are measurable changes that happen. Yeah, well, I, I would love some advice on that because I'm, uh, I'm in day three of my own experiment with this. And the first run, I mean, I just felt like I was suffocating. And there were a couple of times where I just, I had to take a, a gulp of air. So you're telling me, although I, it's good to hear sort of the, the parameters of, of weeks or months, but you do get to a point where it, it feels less constrictive. And that's what you experienced. So absolutely, it's what I've experienced. And I, and I have CAT scans to prove it, you know, a year, year before, year after. So the first thing to do is, is, yeah, is to acknowledge that it's going to be a pretty rough ride for a little while, but, but don't give up. A second thing to do is to cheat a little bit. And by that, I mean, use breathe right strips. These are strips that go uh, right on the bridge of your nose that pull your nostrils up 
to allow you to get more air in through your nose, to allow you to be like our ancestors. So crazy. We have technology that now allows us to be the way that we were supposed to have been before we screwed ourselves up. But there's also these, these cool little things that I, I've just been trying out called, called mute and they, they go inside of the nostrils. So, so they're less obvious and they also can dilate the nostrils by something like 20 or 30%. So I think that those are great tools, little, little crutches to use the, the training wheels to, to get you to adapt more easily. And after that, you know, that need to breathe that you're experiencing is not a lack of oxygen. That's an increase of CO2. And by increasing your CO2, you can increase EPO. You can increase circulation. You can decrease your heart rate. So there's a lot of benefits to that. It's just not pleasant. No one wants to feel that. But it does get easier as your tolerance goes up. Yeah, well, it's sort of impossible for me to imagine, but clearly, as you say, the research backs up, there's not a debate about this, but just to imagining, you know, those iconic stages of the Tour de France in the mountains, you know, the Alpes de Huys that I'd never seen a rider with their mouth closed on those, those last ascents and that they might be better off riding that way is uh, kind of mind boggling. Well, you know, when someone is at the very last stages of a competition, uh, you think about a boxer, whenever a boxer starts breathing through the mouth, they're just about to fall over. And you see this with MMA stuff as, as well. So that is just this reflex reaction. They might not even know they're, they're doing that. But, but again, the, the science is very clear, and especially with oxygen, if, if, when you're at altitude, they, they did this study about 15 years ago where they looked at at climbers and some of them were breathing through their mouth and breathing at a rate that's considered normal, you know, 12 to 15 times a minute. And the other group was breathing at a rate of six breaths per minute. So it seems like, you know, half the amount that's considered normal. That group that was breathing more and breathing through the mouth, they were highly hypoxic, 80% SpO2. And the group that was breathing through the nose at six breaths a minute were at about 88 to 89%. <laughs> so by just taking air into you and, and exhaling it very quickly, that air is not used in gas exchange, right? These shallow breaths, most of that air is just stuck in the throat and at the very top of the lungs, which is very inefficient at gas exchange. The point of breathing is to get oxygen into your bloodstream. And it's so much more efficient to take lower, slower breaths through the nose to do that. Okay, so we've established we, we got to keep our mouths closed. Um, and then you shift into, even if you get that piece correct, uh, we need to talk about the way that we breathe. And a lot of this has to do with the amount of breaths that we're taking per minute. So how you make the case that we're breathing too much. And a lot of these experts are making this case. So what does that mean? And, and what, how are we typically breathing before we address some of this? Well, I think a lot of us are conditioned not to think about our breathing. So which is a wonderful thing that we don't have to think about it. It's unconscious. It runs in the background like a software program. And we just go throughout our day and breathe in whatever way our unconscious bodies are telling us to. The, the problem is that our unconscious bodies, are, our unconscious minds are riddled with anxieties. So if we're constantly anxious, we're going to reflect that in our breathing, which is going to make us more anxious and more stressed. And it's going to really create this negative feedback loop. 
So one, one thing that almost all the researchers agreed on that, that I talked to, and I talked to dozens and dozens of these people over years, is yeah, we're breathing way too much because a lot of us think that <sighs> breathing like that, they think that getting more in, more air in more quickly is going to give us more oxygen, but the opposite is true. And this is so counterintuitive that it took me a while to get my head around it. When you're breathing like that, just as I was explaining before, taking a bunch of short breaths, you're taking these shallow breaths. So they did this study. I just heard from Patrick McEwen, who's a breathing therapist, been doing this stuff for for 20 years. He said you have about 50% efficiency when you're breathing at a rate of about 20 times per minute uh, at around six liters. But if you slow down those breaths to about 12 breaths per minute, still breathing the same volume of air, you have 70%. Efficiency. And by efficiency, I mean that's the amount of oxygen that actually gets through the lungs into the bloodstream. But if you slowed that down even more to six breaths a minute, you get 85% efficiency. So you can see what a dramatic effect this would have on someone throughout the day. Instead of constantly having to, <sighs> to breathe and to overwork your heart and overwork all the systems of your body, to breathe as closely in line with your metabolic needs is going to allow your body to work most efficiently, which is gonna save yourself from so much unnecessary wear and tear. And you can allow your body to perform at, at, at really at its peak, which is what you want if no matter if you're running, if you're an ultra marathoner, or if you're an office jockey sitting in front of a, a computer. Like who doesn't wanna work at peak efficiency? It sounds like for most Americans, we're doing like 12 to 20 breaths per minute. And the optimal is like, well, the actual optimal, optimal, it sounds like 5.5 breaths per minute. How, how do we determine that number? And is it just a matter of practicing that and it becomes innate or it's something that we constantly need to be thinking about throughout the day? Well, you're going to want to breathe differently depending on what you're doing. So at rest, the researchers have, have found who've been studying this stuff for, for decades again, that breathing at a rate of about five to six breaths per minute, which is about a five to six second inhale and a five to six second exhale, has this wonderful effect on your body. You increase oxygen to your brain, your circulation increases, your heart rate goes down. I've seen my blood pressure go down about 10 points just within a couple minutes of breathing like this. And the most importantly is all the systems of the body enter this state of what they call coherence which I was just mentioning, where everything is really locked in at peak efficiency. And just to be clear, I said 5.5 because that seems to really be the sweet spot until I started getting these emails from a bunch of people saying, dude, what, you know, what's wrong if I, I'm a half a second off and I can't figure it out and it's driving me crazy? I'm just like, good, good God. So the point of this is, is to relax. If you're a second off, who cares? You know, as long as you're breathing slower, and lighter and lower. So you really want to engage the diaphragm. The diaphragm is this muscle that's underneath the lungs that it lowers to allow the lungs to inflate and it rises up to push air out of the lungs because the lungs don't inflate by themselves. The diaphragm does this. And it turns out that this diaphragmatic movement is not only essential to get air in and get air out, the diaphragm also has so many other benefits of, of moving it because every time you inhale, 
It will gently massage the organs, which helps them leach out lymph fluid. And every time you exhale, it works as a pump to take lymph fluid and other toxins out of our bodies. And if you think about it, we're breathing, you know, 20,000 times a day, 25,000 times on the, on the upper end of that. If you're doing this wrong and if you're doing it inefficiently, it's just going to eventually wear your body out. And we've seen that with so much of the population. And what's great about breathing is it's so easy and it's free to correct it. And this is a great place for everyone to start. Yeah. And in trying to apply some of this um, and some of the exercises, one thing that I'd love for you to talk a little bit about is you have a sentence in there. <clears throat> well, first of all, you're making the case that we need to breathe less but that breathing less is not the same as breathing slowly. So if I do get to, let's say, that optimal 5.5 breaths per minute um, or, you know, a second under or over that, what is, what's the difference between just doing that by breathing slowly but not technically breathing less? Help me understand that distinction. So you want about 5.5 liters of breath per minute. You see the 5.5 theme here. And that means, you know, five to six liters of breath per minute. So you can get those liters of breath in different ways. You can, and I, an analogy I use that I had heard from someone else is, think about breathing as though you're rowing a boat across a lake. So you can take a zillion very short, choppy strokes, and you'll get across the lake. Or you can take extremely fluid, efficient strokes, and you'll get across the lake faster and you'll also be exerting a lot less energy doing that. So you want to breathe in that same way. So you need that same amount of air. That's the optimal amount of air. And most of us take about a half a liter of breath in. Uh, we breathe, you know, 12 to 20 times, about half a liter of breath. But if you increase that to, to about a liter of breath with, with each inhale, your body is just going to be able to extract oxygen from that breath so much easier because you're taking it you're pressurizing it you're breathing through your nose and you're allowing it to take some time in your lungs and the the bottom of the lungs have a much greater perfusion of blood so they're much more efficient at extracting oxygen and delivering it into your bloodstream so that that's really the key and what i was saying is you know you can breathe slow and breathe too much you know if you're if you're filling up your lungs all the way and, and you know, some people do this because uh, we're Westerners and, and we, we get a new hack and then we just want to exploit it to, to its ends. But breathing should be something that should feel, feel light and calm. So it's the same amount of breath. You're just taking it a different way. And what I heard from also from so many researchers is so many of us are breathing far beyond that five to six liters of breath per minute. So up to 10 liters per minute. So twice the amount. And you're not using that breath. You're just, you're bringing it into your body to push it back out. But you don't use any of it. So it's just a complete waste of energy. And your book also, I mean, has some great resources in the appendix just about all of these various exercises and techniques, many of which we didn't touch on uh, today. But I imagine before you got into this research, breath exercises weren't at all a part of your daily or weekly habit. How are you incorporating some of this stuff on a personal level now? And like, how, how should people think about breath as, as a kind of component to their overall health and, and fitting that in? 
Yeah, so there's already dozens and dozens books about how to breathe, right? There's yoga books with have these crazy names for 400 different breathing methods. And whenever I looked at that, I got really confused because I'm, I'm looking through. I was like, well, wh which one should I do? You do all of them throughout your life. It's just like, well, that's that's not going to work in the modern world. So what I try to focus in the book is not focus on individual breathing techniques, because what I found is so many of them are just doing the same thing. There's a zillion different pranayamas that all have you breathe really fast and then breathe really slow. And again, they all have fancy names. Same things with with Qigong exercises, there's a million slow breathing exercises. So I tried to look at the um, umbrella of breathing. What are the advantages of breathing slowly? What are the advantages of breathing less? What are the advantages of having a full exhale and engaging the diaphragm? And what are the advantages of occasionally breathing a lot more than you should and under a controlled environment like Wim Hof breathing or Tumo breathing where you <laughs> really go for it? It has huge benefits to doing that as well. So, you know, that's, that's having said all that, yeah, I, I practice Wim Hof's breathing. You can call it Tumo. You can call it Wim Hof method, whatever. It's been around for thousands of years. I, I do that about three or four times a week. I love it. Uh, not only I, I, can I feel the effects and do I sleep better that night, but it just feels great. I practice these slow breathing techniques um, throughout the day when I'm stressed out and I'm working. Whenever I'm working out, um, even when I'm surfing, I'm, I'm breathing through my nose as much as possible. And now it's just become habitual. It's, I am become a, from a obligate mouth breather to an obligate nasal breather. And it's, it's something that once you learn this stuff, and this is kind of bad, you just start noticing it all over wherever you go, like people breathing through their mouth while they're jogging or working out and, uh, you know, uh, just making these simple things. And that's also what I love about this stuff is it's not asking you to go on a keto diet or paleo diet. It's asking you to change your breathing. Your breathing is something that you carry with you all day long. And so it's just focusing on that and making it for more efficient can just have such a huge effect on your health. That was journalist James Nestor speaking about his new book, Breath, with outside editor Chris Cox. You can learn more about James's work and buy a copy of Breath on his website, mrjamesnestor.com. That's M-R-J-A-M-E-S-N-E-S-T-O-R.com. You can read James's riveting feature for Outside Magazine about the freediving world championships at outsideonline.com. Just search for his name, James Nestor. And while you're there, please consider making a contribution to Outside to fund the storytelling we do on this podcast. You can do that right now at outsideonline.com backslash podcast listener. We really appreciate your support. This episode was brought to you by Features, socks that help you perform at your best. See for yourself why Features has become the number one running sock in America. Outside podcast listeners receive $10 off your first pair. Go to features.com and enter the code outside at checkout. That's F-E-E-T-U-R-E-S dot com and enter the promo code outside at checkout. We'll be back next week.